Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast which was set up to raise awareness of mental health and also to tackle the stigma surrounding mental health not only in the UK where I'm based but also around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Enoch and Laura all the way from China. Hi both. Hello. Hello. So, first of all, just for the listeners, um, and we'll start with you, Enoch, first. Sure. Would you be able to give a background about who you are and the reason you became passionate about mental health? Sure. Um, and thank you for having us on your podcast. It's uh, lovely to be connecting with people from different parts of the world with the same interest. Um, so, I am originally from Hong Kong and have been living in Beijing for the last 12 years. I became passionate about mental health because um, through my own experience of clinical depression, burnout and suicide attempts, I realized the biases and assumptions that I held against the idea of mental health, particularly when I was working in corporate and the idea that if I was depressed, then I was weak and I was a failure. And, and as I lived through it and recovered from it and found my way through writing, through playing, through creativity, you know, lots of therapy and all of that, I started to think that perhaps it's not just myself who would hold these biases and assumptions, and particularly in the way that I grew up in Hong Kong, where we're very achievement focused and a very competitive society. So I started to think about, you know, what can we do to change that mindset? And as my soul searching went, I studied organizational psychology, I did various different things and, and I had always been writing about mental health and doing talks in the community because I have a, um, a stubborn conviction that people needed to, to think about this, especially if we're thinking you know, seven, eight years ago when this topic was even more taboo and there was much less talk about it than we would find yeah. nowadays. Um, so I, it was really in some ways a bit of evolution, bit of trial and error to um, what I do now, and which is running and leading a company called Therapy. And we focus on helping organizations and companies think about, strategize and design workplaces that has mental health as part of the company culture so that it transpires through the whole organizational structure, the teams, and also obviously helping individuals understand that you know mental health is quote unquote a thing, it exists, um, but also looking at what is it, how do we understand those states of mind, and of course in more palatable ways around stress management, building resilience, and really what we do is to raise the awareness, increase the education, and help people understand what they're going through so that when they do need the help they can go and look for that support um, so that's what I do I, I run a small team um, that um, facilitates and, and consults to companies and we also have a team of volunteers that focuses on the community awareness work that we do because we're very much a social impact company um, i.e we we make the money where we can but we put the money back into the community so that um, yep. more people can grow and increase in awareness. So I'll stop there, maybe hand it over to Laura, my colleague. Thank you. Yes, I'm Laura, um, Italian, who studied in Italy, who studied mental health in China, in Italy, Germany, and in China. Uh, my Actually, my major is in foreign languages and China studies, but somehow um, I've always drifted towards uh, mental health. And since the focus was on my, of my studies was China, um, it was always there. And I think everything started um, in 2016, 2015, when I was studying in Berlin, already China studies, and, um, and I saw an exhibition of outsider art slash art um, of course, Western outsider art, and um, it just caught my attention. And and since I was about to move to China for one year to study at Zhejiang University, um, I just decided to start looking into it. And I guess that's how it started. I mainly back then focus on um, community-based mental health and how the civil society 
organizes their services and their resources to um, meet the demand that is now growing, but was already quite big back then. And, uh, and therefore then from, from that moment on, I just started researching the system, uh, the history of psychiatric institutions in China. And, and then uh, March, 2021, I found therapy. And given my, my background in marketing, I, I managed to pair uh, my professional experience with my passion. And uh, that's why I'm here. Okay, it sounds very fascinating and it's very insightful, particularly about your company, Enochian Therapy. Um, what have you learned from the company, from working with executives about how mental health is perceived in the workplace? Mm. It really varies and... Um... Our client base is predominantly actually multinationals who are based in China. And I think that exists, that is the case for a reason. Um, we started working with multinationals in China the last few years in some ways because they seem much more open to the idea and they are in some ways already starting to um, have well-being initiatives across the board over all of their global offices. So the executives and the HR department are familiar enough with the idea of well-being. Even though I have seen a change in topics from um, a few years ago of stress management to now really more inquiries around, well, what is mental health and how can we uh, reinforce the skills of our people managers, for example, to look after the employees and, and thinking about it more strategically on not just one workshop a year, um, because we all know that you know, an hour and a half a year, it's not going to sustain much change in mindset or behavior. Um, and we have approached uh, more locally based companies and the responses are quite varied. The smaller size companies or the uh, smaller size newer entrepreneurs, they're quite open to the idea. Um, and the challenge for them is they might not have the budget. For some of the larger companies, um, it doesn't seem like this is in the conversation for senior business leaders. It doesn't feel like it's something that the company executives believe is a role of a manager or something that senior management will be thinking about. I have, for example, been very politely asked to go and talk to the unions instead. Um, and that may be a family day out to the park or something like that would be much more well received and, and I've had to find a way to politely say well going to the park is really good and that's not all of mental health and what it's about and um, so it does feel like there's a lot of nurturing of the market that needs to be done a lot of education and um, particularly in a proliferance um, sort of tech culture um, big startups big tech companies um, there's a idea called 996, which is equivalent to what Silicon Valley used to call hustling. And it's, uh, it's 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Mm. six days a week is the, um, almost I'd say is the minimum or the average or is an accepted culture of let's work long hours, let's stay in the office long. Um, yeah. That means you're working hard. That means you're a good employee. So the idea of mental health is very differently received depending on the kind of company and the company culture that we talk to. I mean, I, I find that very interesting um, because I know in the UK, particularly in the legal profession in the UK, mm -hmm. which I'm obviously part of, it's me mental health isn't necessarily um, included within the legal profession. So it's more excluded. And if you want to talk to management about you suffering with anxiety and depression, you don't feel you are able to because mm -hmm. management will say that you're one of three things, very similar to what you said about being depressed in terms of they will think that you're weak, that you're unable mm -hmm. to do your job and you will lose the respect of your fellow workers and 
it's been like that for a number of years within the legal profession in the UK and to an extent in the USA from having discussions with people in the US who work within the law and mm. the most common thing that is said is billable hours there are mm. always targets and mm. people work crazy hours I mean I, I used to a good few mm. years ago um, just to <clears throat> fit in with what that particular profession is supposed to do so be that mm. being a lawyer be that being in the banking and finance industry I imagine that's very chaotic very um turbulent mm. um but yeah I, I I do find that interesting in that depending on the business will depend on what stance that they take mm. um and in terms of how mental health is perceived in China, mm. um, how would you say mental health is perceived? And either Enoch or Laura can go first on this one. Maybe I let Laura you you start because um, you probably know quite a bit more than I do for the general sense. Okay. Um, well, for how it is perceived right now, um, there seem to have improvement has happened because given the, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic, more and more people are actually experiencing mental health conditions, mild to moderate. And uh, um, that kind of broke the stigma, uh, not fully, but it somehow helped because we, more people are involved. And because since the beginning of the pandemic, so already was, I think, the 26th of January, uh, immediately the government issued a policy about the about uh, uh, people with mental health conditions and uh, psychological support and assistance throughout the pandemic. So uh, the government is acknowledging that there is a problem. Um, so this top-down approach is also helpful to dispel stigma. More people are, are, are affected, that also helps. But culturally, um, stigma is still deeply rooted. There is reluctance to seek treatment. And that is one of the biggest problems um, that is uh, caused by self-stigma and also interpersonal stigma. So how people might perceive, um, how the community society might perceive people with mental health conditions. And there is also another kind of stigma that is also very problematic, that is professional stigma. That means uh, um, the profession um, is not sexy, it's not very attractive, especially uh, because it's very often tied to crisis management or psychosis management, and that is, um, that is not motivating more people to actually, um, to actually uh, start the psychiatric or psychology career. And, um, and that is uh, part, of the, part of the problem. There is a lack of uh, trained, well-trained staff. Uh, people don't want to seek treatment. Um, so overall, uh, throughout the pandemic, it did, it did improve, but uh, since, can you hear me? Oh yeah, since, um, can you hear me? Okay, sorry, I couldn't hear anything. Um, and since um, since the problem was already quite big, it was like a long simmering crisis. Um, still, much has to be done. Um, and when I mentioned the cultural stigma, so all these kinds of stigma now are are um, deeply rooted into society, and they are also. Um, kind of uh, the, the, the cultural and historical roots are hardly recognizable. But um, this is uh, rooted in the, for example, etiological, so the etiology of psychiatric diseases according to popular uh, traditions, for example, demonic possessions, um, or um, also losing faith is part of it, it's, uh, it's part of it, uh, uh, or being genetically tainted. So if you have a mental health condition, your family then is likely to have it. And, um, and then it's, uh, it's therefore a widespread um, and widespread kind of stigma that, uh, 
that is uh, that has co that constitutes uh, a big challenge uh, uh, still now when when the the results of the pandemic are still fully to be seen okay um i mean what support is available for someone in china if they are suffering with their mental health so there, um, since the uh, since the market economy, like community community based, fully community based, and public uh, insurance has been dispelled, but um, given the poor results of the profit oriented uh, hospitals and uh, and insurance uh, from the eighties to the nineties, in the nineties, the government started to actually focus more on again on community based mental health and on um, increasing uh the the support the financial support given to the sector so right now there are three main insurance systems for urban residents rural residents and unemployed uh and and uh, yeah unemployed people so uh, it is possible to go to the hospital to seek help um but that is apart from the cultural stigma and this reluctance that i just mentioned um the problem is that not only uh, the country lacks well-trained um, physicians with a psychiatric uh, qualification but um still the number of uh, of uh, of people who can uh, um, of, of physicians who can offer them the, the services is very low and and therefore the time and quality of the services that is offered uh, still cannot meet the demand the government again um, has issued uh, several policies since the beginning of the pandemic but already um, they started uh, uh, a couple of decades ago to to uh, seriously uh, focus on mental health and um, and strengthening the services but um, yeah much has to be done still yeah i find that fascinating because i know when me and enoch had a previous discussion um i was very pleased to hear that obviously the government has injected a lot of money into training psychologists mm -hmm. and to me at least psychologists seem to be the new psychiatrists within mental health they seem to be growing more and more important and in some cases arguably more important than a psychiatrist mm. um, I know over here in the UK some hospitals yes they have a psychiatrist but the treatment is psychologically led and the psychiatrist mm. takes a seat back mm. Do you think that approach would work in China? Do you feel more people would be confident enough, happy enough to get support? Because the impression I'm getting at the moment is there is support out there, but because of the self-stigma and the professional stigma, people don't feel able to get it because if they do, they'll be deemed crazy in inverted commas. Mm. Um, I can jump in here and I, I can't speak for, you know, the, the whole population, but in, yep. in the executives that we work with and in conversations with them, um, usually after the workshops and events we do, some of the themes I'm picking up is that, and, and this is perhaps a bit of a structural challenge of the way that these professionals are licensed in China and the psychiatrists who we know are medically trained, they are housed in hospitals. Yeah. And as far as I know, and Laura, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that only psychiatrists who are medically trained can diagnose any mental health conditions. So yeah. whilst there is an increasing number of what locally they called therapists, which are almost equivalent to the idea of clinical psychologists, say in the US or the UK, who are also licensed to diagnose mental health conditions, therapists in China are not allowed to. And in some ways, I, it, it's also difficult even for me being here for so long, reading the language to completely understand how these therapists are trained and what is the training that they go through and who are, what are counselors, what are therapists, who can do what. And from, from the conversations with these executives, it's 
like, well, we can go and see a therapist, but they can't tell us what we're actually going through. Um, and to actually find out what we're going through, we have to go to a hospital. But one, we don't want to go to the hospital for all those reasons that we've mentioned before. And secondly, even if we do, it takes a long time to line up. Um, and then, you know, we get a diagnosis and then we come back to, to the therapist. So there seems to be some structural issues there where it's, you know, I would love, and, and my own experience of having had medication and psychotherapy, I, I think for some people, the combination of the two works really well. And for me, I stopped medication, but my psychotherapy continued for a few years afterwards. And I do think that's really helpful for a lot of people. And, and in some ways, I think, you know, quote unquote, everybody should have a shrink. Um, it's just good for, for all of us in some ways. Um, and, and I can see that increasing. I can see people more receptive to the idea of talking to someone. And then when they do talk to somebody, but they're not able to really understand, well, what is the reality I'm going through? Is this really clinical depression? Is this anxiety? Even, you know, we all know, even with depression, there are all these different classifications. Um, and then you add in an element of, uh, from a Chinese medicine perspective, and, and I'm piggybacking actually on what Laura said in another um, conversation we had last week is, from a Chinese medicine perspective, like mental health also hasn't been taken out as a thing until more recent years. Um, and the way that even we think about mental health, it's very much connected to the organs, the physical body. So I, I also have executives who ask me and say, well, am I really burning out or am I just living up the Chinese value of perseverance and persistence? Um, and if I'm not feeling so well, my cheese not there, then I need to go and do something for um, replenishing the energy. But then the, the idea or the lingo around, maybe it's burnout, maybe it's a mental health condition. That's not very popular yet because I don't think people can really distinguish between all of them. And sometimes even I myself, I'm like, well, I, I think I'm burnout, I'm exhausted and I can persist and I'm, I can persevere. But you know, and, and with me, I've had 10 years of experience with depressive episodes and burnout, like I'm a little bit more aware of my signals already. So I can imagine the confusion for a lot of people here, um, because there's just so many different perspectives there. Yeah, um, very interesting that you mentioned burnout, because I don't even think I know what burnout looks like. Mm. um or what the sig the signals are the triggers are for it i just assume that burnout is when you have literally done so much you are physically drained you're mentally exhausted um but what does that look like and i i don't think people know what that looks like because i certainly don't know what it looks like Um, would you be able to explain what burnout looks like generically? I can try. Um, and I know that the World Health Organization has its uh, definitions of it being an occupational phenomena. So it's not considered a quote unquote mental illness or disorder per se. And yeah what it includes is the extreme exhaustion and fatigue um, and also a loss of meaning or purpose for our work um, because it is connected to the organization. And if I, I generically think about it, sort of what I categorize in my experience as burnout is the physical and mental exhaustion and just a extreme lethargy and reluctance and resistance to be dealing with anything connected to work because I don't find meaning in it. I might even be quite cynical. Um, going to work scares me because maybe of some of the conflicts and relationships there. So it's very much centered around the workplace um, when we talk about burnout. But if you 
actually look into the research and the history of burnout like it's been termed since I think maybe the 70s or something like that mm -hmm. or even earlier and you have all these different models of is it the mass clock hierarchy or the test of burnout and 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 I agree with you where it's very hard to pinpoint and say well if you tick all these boxes then you'll burn out it, it almost in some ways feels like yeah. a that's how I feel and I remember when the WHO classified it as an occupational phenomena. There was a lot of people sending me that article and that press release and say, Enoch, because I've been in, you know, I've been talking about this for a while. And I was like, look, it's been recognized now and, and all of it and celebrate. And I, and I looked at it and I was like, hang on a minute. I feel more burnout from life itself than from my work. So where does that bit go in terms of, you know, just a yeah. general sense of, I just can't do it anymore. Uh I absolutely agree. And in a, in a sense, is COVID going to increase burnout? Because everything that we've all had to go through for the last 12 plus months, is that, is that just going to increase the rate of burnout of people just being able to adapt to normal in the loosest sense life? Hmm. That's a difficult question and I hesitate because I don't feel I have the enough data to generalize into a yes or no, but what I could, you know, my, my experience of it would be there would be newer other triggers that could burn us out. I think the different ways of working that is now required of us. Um, here in China, we've actually been back in the office uh, for about a year now. Um, so wow. there's less Zoom calls, less Zoom fatigue. And then there is also still, especially for people who have to work with other countries. So I think the ways that a workplace can burn us out is probably diversified um, and then Will the rates increase? I don't know. I also feel like people are much more cognizant of this phenomena. Um, it's much more in the popular talk. Um, maybe Laura can compliment on that um, in, in a bit, but it feels like we have more inward requiries from organizations like, look, we think this is a problem. We can see it, what do we do with it? So how that's gonna pan out, I um, I wish I could predict that. And if I could predict that, I could probably predict the stock market, which you know, <laughs> can maybe retire early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I also find it very hard to answer, but I recently read about um, a study or a very informal research on uh, the younger generation uh, of professionals here in China in, in, in big cities. And what is happening is that, as, as uh, Enoch said, there is this new culture, not very new anymore, actually, 966, uh, that is actually turning into a, an even wilder um, uh, life pace and, and work pace. And it seems that how younger generations are trying to cope with that is to um, um, kind of take revenge on their companies who are demanding so much from them by staying up until late. And instead of coming back from work, going to bed at 10, 11, midnight, when they're exhausted and worn out from a day of work, they just go, for example, the article was about board games. They just go out and, and play board games from until 2, wow. 3 a.m., well aware that on the following day they're going to be even more worn out, but it's it's spiritually more enriching than um, dedicating one's entire life and hours to work. That is, of course, not sustainable. But um, it seems that it's a new trend, and uh, I'd be interested in seeing how that is going to evolve. Because again, I don't find it sustainable. Maybe when you're twenty three, but. Uh, <laughs> Not anymore when you're 29. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's no way I could even sustain that though. I mean, mm. being out till two, three in the morning yeah. and then going to work the following day. I think the only time I've done that is when my flight has been delayed. 
I've got back in my own country and I've got to get to work again. And that nearly finished me off. Um, So, yeah, that is not sustainable at all for the long term. Um, So, I mean, I guess the million dollar question is, how can we tackle the stigma surrounding mental health within China? Um, what are your thoughts on, on that, Enoch and Laura? Laura, do you want to go first? Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, well, again, the government is trying to do a lot to dispel the stigma because they realise that this is... This is, a, this is a problem that has to be, especially after the pandemic, has to be tackled. Um, grassroots organizations, civil society, uh, they are um, very well organized, I, I would say, very often to, um, to tackle the problem at community level. There are different forms. I mentioned before outsider art because I actually got in touch with one of these organizations that is um, that is working also on stigma from a very peculiar perspective that is the one of art and try to integrate uh, mental health services for the community within with what they do. Um, here in Beijing, there are uh, several actually uh, organization also uh, led by, uh, by young people, very young people, actually students. Um, they're either radio, podcast, uh, um, events, activities, um, also art uh, that all try to tackle the problem from a different perspective so that um, for example the word mental health is not directly used but uh, mental well-being is maybe more accepted or doing art for one's spirit is is, uh, is more accepted or the connection between mind and body where um, which which of course is is uh, comes from uh, Chinese uh, the Chinese traditional medicine but that all makes uh, the topic um, uh, that just open up, opens up to the topic and uh, and uh, tries to dispel stigma. So I think the community is doing a lot from for for that. Not only because of this top-down approach from the government, just uh, pouring down uh, policies, regulations, and advices to the community, but because the community itself is more and more affected by it. Um, yeah. Mm. And and I'll maybe add in, in the sort of the workplace uh, context based on this landscape because I can also I think part of what the government I see also doing is they're investing a lot in universities and youth um, and and wow. I think part you know I think there is something along the lines of every university and school needs to have a counselor so I think they're also trying to change the mindset of the younger generation. And why that connects with the workplace is a, a, a large majority of the executives we work with are parents. So they also have the role of having a parent and sometimes they have young children, sometimes they have youth. And we have found that sometimes working with companies where if we know that the resistance is quite high, we enter from a different angle and we enter from an angle of parenting because parenting is such an art and it's such a, you know, such a prize idea of how do we raise our kids. And we have worked with a few banks where we didn't do quote unquote a wellbeing workshop. We did a parenting communication workshop and we talked about the wellness of these students, the pressures they face. But what the way we do it is we help the parents who are also executives slowly understand that in order for the family and the children to have an idea of well-being and able to upkeep their health in this sense, the parents themselves have a role to play, that they need to understand themselves first. They need to be able to regulate their own emotions, be aware of their physical signals, be un- you know, they need to understand that I'm at a stress level and maybe I'm I'm scolding my kids because of my stress and not because my kids um, have done anything and I'm I'm super guilty as charged here um, and my, my poor kids are only seven and four but you know like coupled with all this pressure I think 
sometimes if we enter it from an angle that's relatable and it solves their immediate challenges, then it really takes down the lens of, oh, I'm not crazy because we're not, we're not trying to convince them that they are not crazy or that they are. We're trying to help them understand how it relates to their relationships, how it relates to their work. And once people see how, they, how they're implicated, they are much more open to be talking about it. Um, and I do find that um, some of these global best practice advice around sharing our stories in the workplace, um, being vulnerable, I think that's important. And I also think we need to be careful when it comes to this part of the world because the idea of a strong leader is so ingrained in the way we are brought up. I've actually spoken to some executives who said, I don't wanna see my manager crying in front of me and telling me about their problems. Um, that's a private issue. It shouldn't be in the workplace. Mm. Um, they, they deal with it. And, and in some ways they felt much more at a loss when they realized how vulnerable their managers are which isn't to say it's a good or bad thing. Um, you know, I, I wish there can be more psychological safety for people to share and, and it is changing, but I do think that needs to be done very delicately um, so that people can relate, but not get even more sort of repulsed by the idea of, oh, she's crying in front of me, what's wrong with her? Um, and I do think education, like just the awareness of self that's, that's in a lot of ways what we do with companies is we anchor it about your self-awareness. It will impact your leadership. It will impact your team relationships. Um, and then we go, look, this is your well-being. You've got to look after yourself. And that actually sleeping will probably make you more productive and functional. They're not sleeping, um, things like that. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of education, um, would it be helpful if children were educated around mental health at schools to know what mental health is, what the signs of poor mental health are, where they can go and get support, how they can ask for support? Do you feel that would be one way in tackling the stigma? I do think that's helpful. Um, and I do... We, we get invited sometimes to schools as well. And I know at least for some of the international schools, they all have counselors. They all have somebody who's psychologically trained on site. And, and my experience of a lot of these youth from international schools is that they're more and more open. You know, they can identify and then mm -hmm. they are the ones, um, oh, last week's event, Laura, you know, one, one international school high school student brought her father to the event. And, and he got really into it. And I do think there is something to be said of, if my child is into this, then it also changes the older generation. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, you know, my daughter's in a Chinese school and they, they do physical exercise every morning, right? They, I quite like a teacher because I do think a new generation of teachers are talking about emotions. Um, so yeah. I think that's also partly the role of parents as well, communicating with the teachers. Um, in that way and then there is still the structural issue of you know there is a lot of homework there is exams how do we how do we you know ease it all out in that way um, I, I, I I sometimes wish somebody would tell me the answer and I can I can <laughs> listen to the podcast you know, like <laughs> about if I may a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, words about um, education with children teenagers and adolescents um, I think last week there was a new policy here in China implemented to decrease the amount of homeworks that uh, children in primary and middle school receive. Um, I've, I've heard that from plenty of parents actually, the, that the amount is insane of homeworks, the amount of the homeworks is insane. And I've even heard parents saying that they think uh, that their kids have some psychological um, condition issue uh, because of all the stress and pressure that they feel at at school, and that is that has been uh, it's been acknowledged here. 
of course it's not something that can be can change overnight but um but it's happening and something else that i find very interesting and again this is like from friends words of word of mouth or observation so no studies um but um uh, at a high at high school level and at universities it happens um quite often that the students tend to go to international teachers with whom they can speak English to um, seek help, either because they don't know where to go or because um, they find or just perceive being have this bias that international teachers might be more open and uh, less discriminatory uh, towards what they might say and share. And, uh, and I think that the language um, factor is, uh, is quite big because it seems that they feel more comfortable speaking English about it than, than Chinese. Mm. That's, that's uh, yeah, something I've heard quite often recently. Well, I think if there's any English parents with school children listening to this and they've heard that a, that a policy has been passed to decrease homework, I think a lot of English parents will be starting a campaign or a movement to get that happening over here. Is there a lot of homework over there? Um, when I was at school, going back how many years, there was a lot of homework. And mm. when, when you ask your parents for help, your parents are looking at the homework thinking, uh, yeah, I'll try and help you but yeah. I'm probably not going to be able to give you the answers. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I think decreasing homework is a very good way of mm. managing stress, yeah. mm. um, which a lot of children probably now with COVID and everything else going on, they're, they're stressed enough as, as it is. The last thing they need is a ton of homework to be doing. They're asking their parents for help and support and their parents will do their best and they will try and help them. But mm. I, I tend to find that the homework has got tougher now mm. than it was when I was at school and you're given homework on, for example, algebra in year four. And mm. I mean, wow. that is, yeah, that is probably very, very tough. And mm. the, the parents are thinking, well, if this is the homework they're getting in year four, I dread to think mm. what they're going to get in year 10. Mm. Mm. Um, Quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's literally only going to get harder. Well, I won't um, be able to pass school if I'm yeah. in school now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this I, is this is the only moment that I feel quite glad that I'm as old as I am at the moment. Yep, yep. Um, I think school nowadays would be tough. It mm. it, it it would be very tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, in terms of social media now. Mm. Do you feel that social media has a role to play in tackling stigma around mental health? Mm. I can I can give my personal opinion, and then maybe Laura can yep. give a more educated opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I I'm, I and, and I, I make this quite clear as my personal opinion because I I really haven't done much research or study in this in this area, but what I can see of social media, um, and we use a platform called WeChat here, which is an aggregation of WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all in one go. Um, so there's a wow. lot of groups, um, a WeChat group with lots of people, sometimes up to 500. There wow. are what we call mini programs, essentially websites on WeChat, and then you know, we can read articles and interact with people and comments and all of it. And I, I follow a few different um, accounts on WeChat, you know, people posting articles, a few different groups. I follow some peer support groups um, or, or groups that claim to be peer support, uh, either via social media or you know, in person. And 
what worries me is the quality of what comes out of it because I sometimes wonder whether if not talked about in a way that's conscientious then it's almost snowballing the stigma effect than not um, and what I mean by that is that there's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that you know, I, I've seen articles where, yeah, we are just different, you know, and, and I'm like, okay, I understand you think differently, but to brand yourselves and group yourself as we are different in some ways, you know, alleviating oneself further and further from the inclusion that we want to see, the understanding that we want to see. So there are little things like that that worries me with social media. And then, of course, there's also the other side where, you know, there's a lot more detection that can be done through technology, artificial intelligence that connects with social media, you know, picking up words and all of that. That I really don't know much about, but I do, I have seen reports of, you know, how they're effective in picking it up. And then also how it, um, on the other side, because we just can't disconnect, um, how it also affects the psyche of young people, um, unable to disconnect from other issues like bullying us you know I sometimes mindlessly scroll on my Instagram for ages and just kind of go oh I should have gone to sleep an hour ago um, you know so, so that sort of thing also happens um yeah I I I, I looked a, a few months ago into a couple of studies on social media and mental health and mental illness related narratives there are not so many studies about it and the ones I found are both on uh, one of the most popular uh, microblogging platform in China that is called Weibo that should be I don't use it but should be like the Chinese Twitter uh, no studies about WeChat and that is actually a huge uh, um, problem uh, but um, the results are not um, groundbreaking or surprising um, they have a huge impact on how uh, mental conditions are, are perceived uh, what has been found is that they even even when the there are campaigns on on social media on this way uh, to dispel stigma and so on it sometimes also leads to uh, a decrease of followers um, even though they aim at uh, decreasing stigmatization and uh, and uh, that still stereotypical representations of people with depression, for example, are still out there or very often um, uh, people with mental health conditions are um, are linked to uh, a criminal context or violent behavior that happened also during the, the, the pandemic at the very beginning uh, when the government had just started implementing uh, policies not only for uh, the staff in hospitals, psychiatric staff, but also for um, psychiatric patients, so people um, inside hospitalizing in psychiatric hospital long term. And what happened there uh, was that the link between social security and stability was created between mental, uh, mental people with mental conditions and COVID. So if COVID already represents a pandemic, a virus represents an uncontrollable factor, uh, something that is beyond our control, that is unpredictable and so on. So do mental health conditions and the two paired, the two coupled together were um, an explosive mix. And what happened is, for example, I saw a report of a picture. Um, it was not really understandable what it was taking, in which kind of building. You could only see a hole in the, in the wall. And the fake news that was circulating was that a psychiatric patients had just um, escaped from the hospital through that hole and was there out in, in the society ready to to commit some criminal act or to to stab someone of course then it was found to be a fake news but the impact and and uh, of, of the news is is huge that was if i'm not wrong was also circulating on weibo so um the, the power is huge and it's not only huge to dispel stigma but also to foster stigmatizing behavior and uh, and stereotypical representations and throughout COVID that was again uh, highlighted by the context. 
So is social media more like a double-edged sword? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that's definitely the perception that I get from social media over here in the UK with Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok. There's there's far too many to to mention now. Um, mm. It's as if there's loads there, and people feel the need to be on all of them and manage each separate account, which mm. can have its its downsides. Um, that your life is essentially enslaved to social media, um, which probably won't help an individual's mental health as a result. But I like to finish my podcast episodes on a fun question. Um, and the most popular fun question at the moment is that if a film director came to you and they said to you that they wanted to make a movie about your life mm -hmm. and you could pick the person who plays you. Mm. Um, who would it be and why? Oh, that's a fun um. question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so any, any, any actress or, or yep. actor that we know of? Yep. Mm. Alive necessary or also from the past? Um, oh, good question. Um, from from the past as well, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, Enoch, if you want to go first, I can. No, I'm, I'm still thinking. <laughs> you you obviously you obviously have an answer. Go for okay. it. Okay. Um, well, I was thinking about either Sarah Bernard. Or um, there was this uh, famous Italian actress, uh, Eleonora Duse, mm -hmm. um, if I remember the name correctly, who worked with uh, a very famous poet, Gabriele D'Annunzio. She was an amazing um, theater actress mm -hmm. um, that was very often chosen by him, who was also her lover. Uh, to play in, her, in his plays until he decided to choose a younger one. <laughs> mm. But she maintained her her elegance and uh, beauty and talent. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Wow. Someone to enhance what I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's always a fantasy. And I, I must admit here, very sheepishly, that the thought had crossed my mind when I published my book, um, Stress in the City, playing my way out of depression of well what if what if this book was a big hit maybe somebody in Hollywood would buy it and become a movie you know of course you know we're, we're allowed our dreams so um I, I will admit that but I I am when I thought about this I I was thinking Emily Blunt um I don't know if she still goes by that last name anymore but I yeah. thought Emily Blunt and I would love for Colin Firth to play my husband who and and Actually, my husband has a huge role to play in, you know, keeping me alive and in one piece. So that would be fun. That would be really wow. nice to see. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Okay. That's um, a really fun question to have. I've never uh, that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's cropped up on quite a few and people <laughs> seem to enjoy it because it's completely different to what we have been discussing. Um but yeah, I would just like to finish by saying it's been an absolute pleasure having you both on the podcast. I'm sure that the listeners will have found it very insightful. Um, I I certainly have. So once again, thank thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. No thank worries. You very much. Thank, thank you for having us.